Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. Welcome to our broadcast. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and this is our Arab Shabbat broadcast for B'nai Shalom, our international messianic congregation online. I want to shout out to all the brethren that are especially outside of the United States. Thank you for joining us in the broadcast. Uh, we are becoming a worldwide congregation through the miracle of the Internet, and it's enabling us to reach uh, even more people than I imagined when I started this a long time ago. But welcome to our service, and we hope that our service is a blessing to you. I hope that you all got to participate and join in in the fall holidays that we just recently completed. And I hope that what's come, come out of that is a renewed spirit to plan now to be uh, enjoying the holidays this year. Uh, Hanukkah is coming up in December, and we have a Hanukkah conference here, December 15 through 17. Registration available. We'd love to have you come and join us for the Feast of Dedication. But in particular, the commanded holidays of Passover in the springtime and, and the seven holidays that follow, all the way back around to Sukkot in the fall. If the Lord tarries, let's keep those holidays. Let's uh, continue to learn each year, grow each year, become stronger in our faith. And one of the ways we do that is by fellowshipping and getting together for the holidays for it. So I encourage you to plan now. Uh, to be a part of Passover. Plan now to uh, keep each of the feasts as it goes through the year. Uh, also, a, a note for you, uh, in mid-November, we will restart the Q&A broadcast where we answer questions that come in from you. If you'd like to be a part of that broadcast, send some questions in. Please send your questions now and up to that date uh, to qa at lionlamb.net. Uh, send your don't, let me encourage you, don't try to make a lot of statements, just ask a great question, and then I'll elaborate, you know, for you and so forth. Um, so send your questions to qa at lionlamb.net, and uh, we'll have that to be a part of the program in mid-November. Amen? All right, well, I'm ready for Sabbath, and so let's go to Kiddush. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Kiddush, a blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Pri HaGahafin, Amen. 
Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the chamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us wonderful wives of Proverbs. And Lord, I pray, thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her as she rises while it's yet night to see about the ways of our household. And I pray that you would bless her and encourage her and strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful blessing she is. I pray that you bless her with your very best blessing and that you would encourage her and strengthen her in all things. And that I confess that I love my wife. So we thank you, Lord, for our wives. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Now let's bless our sons. Bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance and grant you peace. like Ruth and like Esther. May the Lord with you ever be. 
May He bring you home unto the land prepared for thee. May God bless you and grant you long life. May God make you good mothers and May He bring you husbands who will care for you. May the Lord protect and defend you. May His Spirit fill you with grace. May our family grow in happiness, so hear our Sabbath prayer. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Adonai Hamvorach Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Michmocha Baelim Adonai Michamocha Nedahar Bachodesh Nohoratechilot Ohosefelei Ohosefelei Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else? You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Elheinu Melech HaAlam, Asher Natan Lanu Et Derech, all together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Israel et hashabbat, lasot et hashabbat ladortam berit olam. B'nei avayom, b'nei Israel, odhit leolam, kishashet yamim asadonai, et hashamayim, v'et haret zoveyom hashavii shabbat, v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch 
Shem Kivod Malchuto Leolam Vayed Yeshua Hamashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'kol nashicha, uv'chol me'odecha, v'heyu ha'devarim ha'aleh asher nechim e'zavcha, hayom alevavcha, v'shinantam l'avanecha, all together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this Shabbat. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you, to worship you, to praise your name, for you are holy, Father. We invite you to come and join us in our midst, Father, as we lift your name high.
Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was and is and is to come. Shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Bereshit to chapter 6, where our portion will be for this week, the portion of Noah. As you are opening the scripture there, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, nonten ha-torah ha-amein. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. As I said, our portion for this week is the second portion in the Torah cycle. It is the portion entitled Noah, where we will talk about the man uh, known as Noah, which many of us are familiar with the story of Noah and his ark and the great salvation the Lord brought to the earth as it needed to be judged after the great sin uh, of Adam and that the world had fallen into a great amount of corruption. And then we have the story of God's salvation of one man and his family to wipe the earth of the judge, of the corruption that had filled it, and then we have the future generations that follow after that. As we go through the Torah cycle, each and every week and each and every year, uh, often we are looking for what is the, the ministry, what is the teaching that we're trying to draw out each and every week. What is it that we want to do? I, I always want to share, as a Torah teacher, I want to bring out the practical application of what it means to us so that we can be encouraged in our faith each and every week. And the Torah, as we always teach, is alive and powerful, and it, as we go through the cycles of of life, so many times the portion sometimes speaks to us what happened in the previous week or what is going on in our lives at this time. For us here at Lion and Land Ministries, we have uh, come back from the Feast of Tabernacles, which we uh, put on for a great number of brethren, and so much of the work and effort that we do there, the Lord blessed us mightily uh, this year as every year. And one of the things that we do, we come back, and then it's time to get back into the routine, but there's a lot of effort and a lot of energy that goes into to that and man sometimes it feels like we just need a little bit of rest a little bit of relaxation the comfort we were spent a couple of weeks in in RVs or tents and man it just we're looking forward to the comfort of home if you will but wouldn't you know it that the portion of Noah and the meaning of Noah's name what it means is rest 
What it means is comfort. And if we go back, and what I need to do is I need to go back one chapter here in the book of Genesis, and I want to home in on what the meaning of Noah's name and why it's so powerful and what it can truly mean to us. We usually, when we teach the portion of Bereshit, we don't have the time to go through the entire portion, uh, if you will, because there's so many things to cover within creation. However, last week's portion does include Genesis chapter 5. And what I want to do, taking the time with talking about the portion of Noah, I want to go back and look at Genesis chapter 5, because there's an amazing uh prophecy and parallel to the teaching and understanding of the listing of the patriarchs of all the men and all the the, the generations of Adam that followed in, all the way down until we get to Noah. So I want to talk about that there. There are ten men that are listed after Adam, or Adam included, that are the number of generations between Adam and Noah. And we have the listing of the patriarchs here in Genesis chapter 5. And each one was named, and it gives the life of how long they lived, and what age they were when they begat their son. And we have this listing. Now there's an amazing pattern and parallel to what the meanings of the names of these men, and there's an incredible messianic prophecy that we are looking forward to that is a prophecy that points to Yeshua the Messiah, that points to the Son of God who came down, who made sacrifice for us, and it is described here, and you can teach it from Genesis chapter 5. If we look at Bereshit, we, talk we talked about the sin, and we talked about the fall of man, and that we were cast out of the presence of God and out of the paradise that was the Garden of Eden. And then the question is, is where is the redemption going to come from? Where is that peace, where is that comfort, where is that rest going to come when we are restored back to those promises that God gave us and gave to Adam and gave to Eve and we all of the promises and the uh, charge that we have as man to have dominion over the earth, but we want to be restored back to the presence of God. Well, at the end of that portion and at the, uh, basically the beginning of ours uh, for this week, we have that message. We have that plan in which God is going to bring that redemption. If we look at the names of the ten men that were listed, we have Adam, and Adam means man. Man was created by God, Adam being the, the creation of man at the, on the sixth day of creation. He had a son named Seth, and that name, Seth, means appointed, or assigned, if you will. And then he had a son named Enosh, and the, naming of that name, the meaning of that name means mortal. Then he had a son named Canaan. And that name means dwelling or dwelling place. Then he had a son named Mahalelel, Mahalelel, which means the blessed God, or God is to be praised, if you will. Then he had a son named Jared. The name of that mean means to descend or he, or he shall come down. He had a son named Enoch, which means teaching. He had a son named Methuselah, which many are familiar with that name as being the man who has lived the longest according to our biblical record. And his name means his death shall bring, or something that is coming to the end of something. He had a son named Lamech, which was the father of Noah. And that name is a little bit hard to determine what the meaning is, but many, as you go to study, sometimes that meaning means powerful. But then if you go into the root of that, meaning, of that name, it can mean the despairing or those that have sorrow, sorrowful, if you will. And then we have Noah, which means rest and comfort. Now, if you take all of those meanings and you line them all up, 
those ten names, which the number ten has a great number of significance. We're talking about God's judgment or God's perfect plan. We have to, if you want to talk about the Ten Commandments, and we want to talk about how God kind of makes covenant with us, that there's kind of a pattern here with these ten men. If you put all of the meanings of those names, you can tell a story. You can tell a narrative. And this is how that story goes. That there will be a man who was appointed, who was mortal, and he will come and he will dwell with us, or dwell with man. And that the blessed God shall come down and descend upon the earth, if you will, and he will be teaching us, and he will give instruction to us, and that his death shall bring those that are sor- have sorrow, those that are despairing, he will bring, his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. You tell that narrative and you can just picture and you can imagine that the story of the Messiah and that his teaching and his salvation, that he was God who came and dwelt with us, who descended down with us, and that his death will bring rest and comfort to those who are lost, to those who are needy. That is a message that is uh, many of us are familiar with, that in the Christian church, if you want to teach from the book of Genesis and through deeper Hebrew meanings, you want to tell the story of the Messiah and the story of his salvation, you can do that right here with the meaning of these names. It's amazing what God is so powerful and so smart that he can give us these teachings and these instructions in the deeper meanings of these things. I also believe that there's deeper understanding as to the age, the uh, time in which these men lived. I've said when we go through the book of Numbers that numbers mean things and there's no idle word in the scripture. And so I look forward to the day when the Messiah and God can teach us and teach me all of the amazing, even more hidden prophecies and hidden things that encourage me in my faith in Him, knowing that I follow a God and I serve Him who's smarter than me and I am proud to declare him my master. Amen? So here we have now the story, if, you, if we now go into the story of Noah, and we have to describe what the state of the world was at that time. The, the world had fallen into great corruption and great wickedness. Let me read here at the start of chapter 6, uh, here beginning verse 1. Now it came to pass when man began to multiply on the face of the earth. And daughters were born to them, and the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, all whom they choose. Some uh, translations say marrying and giving in marriage. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There, There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of God. So here we have the story of the world, the days of Noah, if you will. There was continual evil in the thoughts and in the hearts of men. And we've talked about two different hearts here because the hearts of men were leading and were yearning for evil and wickedness and all these things. But the heart of God who desires a true relationship with man that he was grieved in his heart. We broke 
the heart of God with the sin and the corruption that we did. And this is something that God hates. This is something that God does not like, a heart that continually seeks after evil. If we go to Proverbs uh, chapter 6, verse 18, there's a listing of seven things that God hates. And one of the things that is listed there in verse 18, it says this, A heart that devises wicked plans and feet that are swift to run to evil is something that is an abomination to the Lord. Along with many other things, like a proud look, a lying tongue. And, but one of the things that it's almost verbatim listed here in the Proverbs, a heart that devises wicked plans, is almost exactly what is described here, where the, every thought and intent of the heart of men was for wickedness, was for evil, was to turn to those things. And that is an abomination. That is not what the Lord, that Lord hates that. And then that is what caused a great amount of destruction. This also will tie into when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're talking about the things that God considers to be an abomination, which is what I believe injustice toward the widow, to the orphan, and, and corrupt judges. Those that are appointed that are to make proper judgments. Those are things that the Lord hates. And those are things that cause cause a great amount of destruction and which causes and invokes the wrath of God and his judgment. So here we have one of these things, one of the examples in scripture where exactly a heart that runs to evil is an abomination that God will judge. What's interesting about Noah, and it's very interesting um, in the name Noah, which is two Hebrew letters, which is a noon and it is a het. And what that name Noah, Noah, is, is obviously means rest and to comfort. What's fantastic about that is if you flip those two letters of that Hebrew word, you form the Hebrew word for grace. That the Hebrew word for grace is spelled het nun. And so that is that Noah and his name, even so even again hidden within his name, were seeking rest and comfort, that also his name can be, you can teach that his name also means grace, that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord is looking to and fro. We always want him to look for what does the Lord think of us? What does, how does the Lord see us in his, in his eyes? Because our eyes tend to follow after evil things. Our eyes tend to go toward wickedness or toward uh, things that are not of the Lord, that we fall into temptation with our eyes. And so often when we view things, we don't see and we don't assign the, the proper value. We need to constantly be seeking the Lord how do we view ourselves in his eyes? And we want to be, we should all strive to be someone like Noah, who, was, who found grace in the eyes of man, who was called. And if we continue on, reading here in verse 9, it says, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. This is something we should all strive to do. When we look at some of the names of these men, these are examples for us to learn from, to follow after, so that we can find grace in the eyes of the Lord. Even in a world full of corruption, full of hate, full of uh, wickedness, which we could describe our modern day as being like the days of Noah, that even within that, that we are that remnant. We are that one person, that one man, that one family, that one fellowship that finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, even when surrounded by wickedness. Noah would have had every reason to fall into the same sin of the rest of the world. However, we, he, the Lord, obviously seeing grace within him, that we are thankful to Noah that he had that faithfulness and the grace of God even in a sea of wickedness, if you will. So the earth was corrupt 
before the Lord. Now, verse 11. And the earth was filled with violence, so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. This is something that I'd like to point out every time I get the chance to as we go through the Torah cycle, uh, specifically for this year. So much of these things, and this is what I've been teaching now recently, is that so much of these uh, commandments and God's focus for His commandment, for His promises, for the things that God remembers and looks down upon, is to restore the sin that took place in the garden. If you remember that when it said that Adam sinned, the curse was upon the ground. The curse was upon the land that from which he came and that there was, that there, we're looking for a great restoration of the kingdom of God, which not only includes God and man, but it also includes the land, the promised land. That is why the entire story of Torah, the whole goal of the story of Torah and the children of Israel is to return back to the promised land. Because we're trying to make restitution that goes all the way back, that covers the curse of the original sin of Adam. is to go back and restore the people to the land. God will remember the land. In fact, after the judgment of the flood, God will say that he is making his covenant with the land, with the earth and the beasts that dwell in it. That sometimes we look and think and we we take things very personally that, yeah, we want to be in covenant with God. But the whole purpose of creation of God is for us to not only have God, for us to be his servants, but to also be in the promised land, in his presence, in the place where he has placed his name. So one of the things every time that you see here in the scriptures, we go through and we're talking about the restoration back to the land. That he's looking upon the earth and the earth has been corrupted because of the sin of man. That's one of the reasons why the judgment was upon the whole earth. Not just upon man. Because the judgment of the sin and the wickedness, if it had to do just with man, then God could have instead brought a great wind that blew everyone away, but then the, the earth was still there. Or the, some sort of pestilence that judged all of the, the uh, sons of Adam, and that they died, but then the earth was just fine and exactly the way that it was. No, the judgment was upon the entire earth. That's why there is this great flood that takes place that is a judgment upon the entire earth. Because there is a connection between us and between us and the land that God had drew us from and we were created from. That's where the breach occurred in the original sin. And that is the great restoration we are looking forward to at the end of the age. It has to do with us coming back to the land. So the commandment is given to Noah. To prepare an ark, to prepare some, a, a floating box that is going to preserve him, his family, and all of the animals. And many of us have seen all of the stories and the pictures and the flannel graph, graph in Sunday school of Noah and his ark, which looks like a boat with a couple of giraffe heads sticking out and all of the, the amazing thing of the animals coming two by two. Now, many, uh, some might question the validity of the story of the ark. In fact, uh, science has constantly trying to disprove, mainstream science is trying to disprove the Bible. If science can prove that the Bible is wrong, then they can prove that God doesn't exist and that they can be the supreme knowledge and authority of all things knowledge in the world. But us who are believers believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, believe in these things and believe in these stories. And so there's actual scientific evidence and many have endeavored to find scientific proof of the ark. 
and you've heard, probably heard of many of the stories and heard of the times in which they're looking for Man- Mount Ararat where the ark rested and where the um, trying to prove that the ark actually and the great flood took place. There are many stories even within ancient civilizations about a great flood. This is it, it does not take uh, it's not very hard to go through and look at ancient civilizations like the Babylonians that tell stories of the great flood. It's not hard to find scientific evidence of at one point in time water covered the faces of the earth. We have scientific evidence. We have fossils uh, that are of sea creatures that are found in great high altitude places knowing that at some point in time mountains and mountain ranges were completely covered with water. It's not hard to find those things but often you, it's hard to hear those things from mainstream Science, because they will not, because their goal, like I said, is to disprove the Bible, disprove those things. But there is constant evidences of a great flood that happened on the earth at one point in time. If you look at the dinosaurs and you look at all of the various bone beds of where dinosaurs are found, many of them, uh, in fact, almost nearly all of them, are found to where they are in the suffocation pose. Their neck is arched back and each one of them, and science will say, it looks like all of these dinosaurs, they all died of suffocation. They all died of whether it be drowning or they like to say that that's where the asteroid hit and there was a great amount of ash. However, a great flood would also explain the why we have all of these extinct animals and the fossil records show that is how that they died from suffocation and or drowning. So, Lots of evidence, lots of things. In fact, if you want to know more about whether the ark could have actually taken place, I don't have the time to do it here in our Torah cycle for this year. However, my father has an excellent teaching called The Logistics of Noah's Ark, where it's a study that he did back when he was actually in his secular career, and he proved logistically that it's very feasible and possible that the ark actually could have succeeded, that it could have, it was built, it was built of a certain kind of wood, it was uh, made to uh, last the flood, and that it was able to house all of the animals that are in question. It was two by two of all of the animals that were unclean, and it was seven animals of the animals that were clean. That's the other thing that's interesting about all of our visual depictions of the of Noah's Ark, we tend to forget that little part where it talks about how Moses was commanded to bring the clean animals by seven, that there were seven of every clean animal. And so when you see the two giraffe heads sticking out, it turns out a giraffe is actually a clean animal, there should be seven giraffe heads sticking out of that boat if we were going to be biblically accurate. And then the cows, which were clean, there should have been seven of those, not two by two. So um, it's always interesting to go back into the scripture and actually kind of reset our visual uh, thought process of what we think it may have looked like at the time. And one of the things when you go into this study, and if you get the logistics of Noah's Ark teaching, you'll find out it's not. it wasn't a boat, it was a box. It was made with three levels, ten cubits high on each level, and that there was, some, there was a great amount of intelligence designed with where the animals were placed, where they were to store food, whether they were able to store enough food for the duration of the flood, and all of those details. So if you ever had that question, wanted to do that study, I encourage you to get um, that lesson and that teaching because it does prove that it is not only possible but highly feasible 
that it that the ark succeeded in its journey through the rain, through the flood, and that all the animals would have survived in the story of the ark. Now, what I do want to talk about here is when the ark came to rest, when we when the ark uh, came down onto Mount Ararat, and what happens is that uh, the Noah and his family they're delivered, and they come out, and as soon as Noah comes out of the ark is that he builds an altar before the Lord, looking at verse 20 of chapter 8. And Noah, I'm going to go ahead and read there. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took every clean animal and every clean bird and, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So because of the, we have this great deliverance, God then gives a covenant and a promise to creation, if you will. He gives a promise that he never again will he judge those things. And that he, then we have seed time and harvest, cold and heat. Many believe that it was after the, uh, the flood that when we had the seasons and that there was a kind of the, the earth kind of now kind of has a little bit of life to itself, if you will, because it seems like in the paradise of the garden, man had to tend to the garden or had to work and, and God took care of those things. But now after the flood, we now have this commandment, almost a description of seasons, if you will. God also continues to pro his promise and a renewal of his covenant with God. One of the things that has to do with the renewing of covenant is building an altar. Altars are made out of stones. And it's like it's another sign in my mind that connects us back to the land and to God. That God, we have to take stones that God created and that we create a form of worship to the Lord. And that he created a special place and he reaffirmed the covenant that he made with Adam. He reaffirms it here with Noah. And this is a pattern that will continue through the rest of our story. Every time that God renews his covenant, you will see the building of an altar, if you will, to renew that covenant. Chapter 9. So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. And you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. For the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, for the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of the man. This is the commandment for us to sanctify life. Life that God has put into every man and into every beast. And that life is in the blood. That the, that the life is the, the, that life which is the nefesh, the soul of every, every creature. That we are now to sanctify life in all things. God is the judge of the world. God has judged the world and all of these creatures that have gone extinct. God has judged the, the world here. And so we are to, the commandment to man is for us to sanctify life from this point forward. The, the uh, blessing continues here, or the commandment continues here. Whoever sheds man blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For, for in the image of God he has made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth 
abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Once again, this is the commandment, the affirm, reaffirming of the covenant that God made with Adam. And that we need to recognize where it says that we are for in the image of God. That's something for us to always remember in all the things that we do, in all the things where our tendency is toward wickedness. We have to remember we are the image bearers of God. He is the king, we are his servants, and we represent him when we go, and we go about our day, going to and fro across the earth, and in everything that we do, being fruitful and multiply. We have to remember that in the image of God, that it's an incredible honor that we have been given over all the creatures of the earth, all the beasts and the birds of the air, and all the fish of the sea, that we are in the image of God, they are not. And that's part of the dominion and the commandment that we have to have dominion over the earth. And the incredible honor that we as man have being in the image of God. Continuing on here at verse 8, chapter 9. God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. That means God's making this covenant with us as well, even many generations after Noah. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, and all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Then God said, this is the sign and the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for a perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on earth. Very strong covenant language being spoken here in chapter 9, talking about this rainbow, this bow, this ark that appears in the sky of God as a sign of his covenant. When it comes to the establishment of covenants, a sign is very important. A sign is very important to every covenant that is made. You ask a husband and a wife that what's the sign of the covenant, and you hold up your ring finger and you point out that, yes, I am married. And if you ever are not wearing your ring, your ring on your finger and your spouse sees you, then one of the common questions going to be asked is, where's your ring? Where is the sign of the covenant that I have made with you? And so one of these signs of a covenant are extremely important in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. I've said before, and I'll say it again, this rainbow is an amazing sign of the covenant. It's an amazing phenomenon, and uh, it's a wonderful sign that God has given to us. And there's a, a, there's a fascinating, fascinating way that I like to describe that. The word for bow in the Hebrew is kisheth, and that comes and that has three Hebrew letters in it. It has a uh, a kuf, a sheen, and a tav. And the meaning of those letters is is very fascinating. The kuf represents the back of the head, or something that has come to pass already. And sometimes even the paleo Hebrew pictograph of that letter is a sun setting on a horizon, and then that sheen represents destruction, or sometimes also represents Almighty God. And then the, the uh, Tav represents a sign or a covenant. And so it's amazing um, 
parallel teaching to just the name of that rainbow, Kesheth, which is after a setting sun, after destruction, this is the sign of the covenant. There's a, just the perfect word picture here that describes that bow in the sky. The also amazing phenomenon about a rainbow is this, is that it is individual for each observer when a rainbow is seen. The way that you see a rainbow is that water refracts off of water in the sky from a cloud and then goes into the observer's eyes. Each rainbow that is seen is a is personalized to the person who sees it. It is unique to you and you alone because it's all based on the perspective of what you see. Now, you can stand side by side with another person and say, look to the sky. Do you see the rainbow? And they say, yes, yes, I see the rainbow. That's because you're standing side by side in a similar point of observation and you both can see a rainbow. However, the way that the phenomenon of what it is, is it's indifferent for each individual because it's based on that perspective. I had a story with my kids where you're watering the grass and you'll be spraying water over your grass and sometimes when the sun is overhead, you'll see the arc of a rainbow appear. And you'll see it and it's like, look, I see a rainbow. And I'll, I'll be spraying the, the water and my kids, I'll be like, hey kids, want to see a rainbow? And they're like, yeah! And, but they can't see the rainbow where they're standing over on the other side of the yard. I said, well, here, come here. And so I have to draw my children in next to me and spray the water so they see the same observation, the same angle that I see, where the sun is overhead, refracting off the water that's in the air, and then you can see the rainbow. So they come, they stand side by side with me, and then I say, do you see the rainbow? And they say, yes, I, they see it. From where they were on the other side of the yard, could not be seen. There's an amazing pattern and principle there, that sometimes to see the sign that God has given us, of his covenant, of his love, sometimes you have to be in fellowship with one another, to see that sign, to see the sign of that covenant. You Sometimes I believe that other people in another place, they might see a rainbow, they might see it a little bit differently, if you will, from their perspective. But when you are with somebody in fellowship, sometimes you have to be side by side to see the sign of the covenant. Many of us experience this probably with our families where we're trying to teach them the truth of Scripture, the truth of Torah, that we, many of us come out of the church, we all have a, a testimony of belief in Yeshua the Messiah, and then we see the signs of His covenant and His commandments that He has given to us here in the Torah, and we try to describe to one of our family members or a friend and say, this is the sign. Do you see? Have, have you read this? This is the, the sign of God's covenant with us. But they won't stand side by side with you from the same perspective, if you will. They'll be like, well, I don't see it that way. Or I don't see any sign. I, I've read that story. That, that doesn't mean anything to me. However, when we read these stories, we see it and we, we look at it from Hebrew lenses, from a different perspective, if you will. It's almost as if somebody is standing in one place looking off to the east after the, as the sun is setting and you can see a rainbow in the sky. And you're yelling over to somebody who's looking at you and say, there's a rainbow in the sky. You have to stand here and look this direction. But they refuse. They won't see the sign, they won't see this, the, the sign of that covenant because they are not looking in the right direction or from the right perspective. So there's a pattern and a principle here that I believe we have to draw in our fellowships, the people who are amongst us, to stand side by side with them and point it out for them. In the same way that my story with my kids, where I have to, to bring my girls over to me, standing side by side with me, until and I have to show it to them. And it's a process. 
we can be encouraged as we go and we encourage our brethren in our fellowships that we do the same. That we bring our brethren in and try to point out the sign of the God's covenant and His love toward us. And we do that through our Bible studies. We do that through our scripture. We do that through reading the scripture with them and teaching them side by side in fellowship with one another. So there's an amazing principle that we can learn here just if we scientifically look at the phenomenon known as a rainbow. Our story does continue here, and it goes through and it talks about the nations that descend from Noah. It tells the story of Noah after the flood, where that there was an instance where Noah became a drunkard, and his youngest son basically went in and uncovered his nakedness, and there was a curse that was put upon that generation uh, that followed after him. However, then there's a blessing put upon um, the other generations, the other sons, Shem and Jepheth, and that there is so there's continuing story of these curses and blessings that God is putting upon them uh, in the generations after Noah. It also talks about the story of the Tower of Babel, where there was men who, even though we have this story in God's redemption, that several generations later, there's a king named Nimrod who stands up and who decides to build a tower because he wants to reach, uh, reach God, and that God had to then confuse all the language of the people so that they would not uh, be doing that kind of work. And our last part of our portion then goes into the descendants of Shem, which is where we then will continue on next week and start talking about our father Abraham, who was a descendant of Shem. The last thing I want to say is this. I'd like to conclude with this. How do we know all of these stories are true? How do we know there was a great flood? I always talked about scientifically. We can go into these things. But for some people, they look at this and they're like, man, that just sounds kind of crazy. Why in the world would that? I mean, this, the, these stories, how did we even get this Bible? They would talk about how, well, if the five books of Moses were, are, are, were written by Moses, then, and he wasn't there, then how would he know all these things? How would we know all these details? How would we know all the names of these people? If Moses was the one who actually finally wrote it all down, then how do we know these things are true? How do we know the stories before the flood were true? How do we know that you know, all of these things uh, happened as they're described in great detail that we have in our scripture today? The thing that's interesting is in the days of old, there weren't all the distractions that we have today. It wasn't TV or radio or any kind of thing that would, all the different areas of entertainment that we have in our modern day. Some of the only things they had in those days were the stories passed down. From a father to a son, or they, that you'd sit and these men lived for great lengths of time. What did they do? You have to know and trust and believe that they spoke with one another, that they talked, that they told everything that they know or they learned, and they learned as the world came out when they found a, a new plant or something new that tasted good. And you can imagine that there was some sort of advances in life, in technology, in, in all of these different things. And yet, when they sat down, that they told those stories of old. That was all that they had. So if we're having a passing down of stories and generations, this is a group of people that would probably have retained that knowledge so well that it was able to be passed down for several generations. In the same way that your grandfather might sit down and tell an old war story, that if you've heard it enough times, you can recount that story yourself. There's some of the stories that my father has told over the years in Torah portions. I can recount those stories because I've heard them over and over again, even though they're now, even though I wasn't there to experience it. And one of the amazing phenomenons is this: if you do the chronology study 
of all the ages of all the men that all existed at the time. How do we know these stories were passed down accurately, if you will? Well, if you do the chronology, Adam was still alive at the time of Lamech, which was Noah's father. Adam was still alive. The man who walked in the garden, who ate of the tree, he probably he could have turned to Methuselah and to Noah's father and he could have told them what that fruit tasted like and how he felt when he determined that he had sinned. He could tell that story in great detail because he was a first account, first hand witness to those events. And so there he was, and he could have told those to Methuselah, who was there all the way up until the flood. In fact, some believe that Methuselah died in the flood based on his age and when his life ended on this, in the same year that the flood began. So there's, this, so there's these people that shared the story, first-hand account from uh, Adam to Methuselah or to Lamech, and then Shem. The son of Noah, he was alive for a hundred years before the flood. A first-hand witness to the events before the flood. Heard all of those stories and could have known and recounted those things. Shem, after the flood, lived so many more years after the flood that Shem was still alive, doing the chronology, during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even though there's so many generations in between, the man who had a first-hand witness to the events before the flood was still alive at the time and in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our patriarchs that we'll, we will continue our story with. So when we start talking about all of the knowledge they had of all the events that had taken place beforehand, they had a first-hand witness of what that world looked like, what happened during the flood, and everything that happened after that. And all they had were the stories that could sit down and be told to one another. So that gives me the encouragement to know, look, that's not very many decrees of separation. I believe these stories are true. I believe these stories are accurate in the same way that a grandfather sits down with his grandkids and shares a story of something he experienced 50 years ago. These men and the stories that we have in our scripture trust and believe that they are true and accurate stories that these fathers and grandfathers shared and passed down to the generations so that then they had all that knowledge. And as we go through our story, let us believe those things. Believe the truth in these words and these things that these men existed, they were real, and they had these lives, these experiences, and understanding they are our grandparents. They are our ancestors. And that we, it's all in the same way you love to sit at Thanksgiving and hear somebody stare, share, hey, hey, Uncle, Uncle Bob, share that one story that, that happened when, when, when you did that again and everybody starts laughing because they're excited to hear the story again. Let us go through the Torah cycle this year and be excited to hear the stories as if we're hearing the words from a grandparent, sharing the words of their experiences and their belief in God and what God and the promises and the miracles that have taken place in their lives and let that be an encouragement to us, their descendants, so that we can be uplifted and encouraged in our faith and enjoy being a part of the family of God. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you, Lord, for your Torah portions. And as we go through the cycle again, Father, may it be renewed. May it be refreshed in our minds as we start a new Torah cycle here that we would continue to be encouraged by the words and the instructions you've given to us. 
of the stories of our of our ancestors, Father, of Noah and of Abraham and of Adam. And Father, I pray that we would take it to heart and that we would be encouraged by all the stories of old and your promises and your covenant that you made not only with them but to their descendants after them. So Father, we know you exist outside of time and you make covenant with us as well. May we always be firm in our belief towards you. May our eyes not go toward wickedness and evil things, Father, but may we turn our eyes upon you. Give us spiritual eyes to see your works and your ways, Father, and not our physical eyes which lead us astray. Father, I pray that you would just attune our spiritual ears to you and all of the things. And as we go through all the teachings of the, of the scripture, Father, and of, I pray a blessing upon me and all the other Torah teachers, Father, as we begin a new cycle and be, begin anew, Father, that ears would be tuned to hear your words, Father, and your instruction for their lives and not the instructions of man or anything that glorifies man but only glorifies you, your name, and your kingdom alone, Father. So we thank you, Lord, for all of your teaching, your instruction, for giving us your word, for pouring out your spirit upon us, and giving us the blessings of each and every day that you make each and every day brand new and make it alive to us, and that we will rejoice in that day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of these things. We give you all the honor, the glory, and the praise. It's in your Son, Yeshua, we pray. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chai alam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And uh, thank you, Ephraim, for your teaching on Noah. Uh, as I mentioned to you last week, this year, uh, instead of going through the Hoftoah portions, or I'm going through New Testament passages that tie into the Torah portion to show how the New Testament, the Messiah, and the Apostles use the Torah teaching as the basis for the teaching in the New Testament. Um, and uh, one of the fundamental principles of teaching the scripture to the brethren today is to show the roots of our faith, that it's God's covenant with our fathers, and how that springs into the, the main pedestal of all teaching, which is the Torah, and then it, into the various branches, which are the prophets, and all ultimately into the New Testament. And it's all one great big tree, you know, uh, of learning. And so we want to teach the whole tree not just a few branches and not just a few select fruit. But uh, we haven't before emphasized what are the fruit, what are the ultimate results uh, that we see in the New Testament that springs from the Torah. And that's our effort this year. So I'll be giving you a teaching of various New Testament passages that tracks with the Torah portion. Now, uh, as uh, Ephraim just got through teaching about Noah uh, and the Great Flood, the, um, there are many references in the New Testament where the Messiah and the Apostles make reference again back to that ancient story to teach us certain key points. I'd like to walk you through several of those so you can see how they tie in. The first, I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, which is like Luke 17, the, many teachers refer to this as the Olivet Discourse. This is where the Messiah came walking out of the temple complex with his disciples, went over to the Mount of Olives, uh, which is to the east 
of where the temple used to be. And he got asked some key questions. Uh, he got asked questions about the end of the age and the sign of your coming. And so he's going to make reference to Noah in the conversations particularly about um, the end of the ages. Because let's, let's make sure we understand what we're talking about. Noah and what happened in the great flood, God judged the whole world. Um, the world that was before the flood... It had come from creation, but it had become very corrupt. And uh, there's a number of statements that are going to be made here by the Messiah with regard to it. He's going to draw a comparison to the world that was before the flood, and he's going to say at the end of the ages, men, mankind has become like that world, and that God judged that world then for that. And so you can be a guarantee God's going to judge it again. Well, the difference is, instead of by water, the first time it's going to be by fire the second time. So with that as an introduction, let's look at what the Bible directly says to this in answering the disciples. Beginning at verse 37 of Matthew 24, it says the following, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until that day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So the world that was with Noah, uh, you know, Noah spent a hundred years building the ark. He was told to build it at the age of 500. The flood came when he was age of 600. So he spent 100 years building the ark. That 100 years that he did that, the world was messed up to begin with at the start. You know, God had made his decision that the man was that corrupt. And so he told Noah to start building the ark. And then, as we'll see in other references, God remained patient with the world and, and, and merciful toward Noah and his family to give them time to prepare the ark uh, before, the came, before the flood came. Now, the illustration that the Messiah is making to us and the direct application for us on the end times has to do with the nature of the world that we're having to endure before the end comes. They're eating and drinking, which, by the way, is another way of saying they were very much caught up in sensuality and entertainment. That they, they weren't about the basics of life. You know, the basics of life are food and water and, and shelter and stuff like that. The reference here to eating and drinking is the more pleasurable aspect of that, where they are into sensuality. They're into, uh, you know, fine dining and, uh, and other kinds of entertainment things with the basics of life. That they had lost complete perspective on how, how does a person live. They were just caught up in having the fun. Now, not everybody was having the fun. It's just some people, the leaders, were having fun to the cost and expense of others. Just in recent days, I have seen a number of documentaries. By the way, I review a lot of material <laughs> over the course of the weeks. And they're talking about, uh, they're coming forward to talk about how previous world leaders 
and the various decisions that they have made either concerning their nation or the impact on the other nations, while it was good for them, it was terrible for the people that were in those various nations and affected by it. Uh, one of the examples I saw, a, a stunning documentary, and I had, I had known about a little bit of this, but I had not quite known the details of what this was about, was the way the British Empire dealt with, before World War I and World War II, what we know as India and Pakistan today. And the British were basically gleaning from that country all manner of resources for their benefit. And to control the population, they fomented within that area conflict between the Hindus and the Muslims and the Christians. They just put everybody off balance, and they were fighting with each other instead of, you know, and it got the attention away from the British because the people didn't like the British occupying them there and doing the colonial thing. And they purposely fomented that conflict. They would take, um, uh, they would take like, for example, a, a Muslim, and they'd make him in charge in the government over a bunch of stuff that were just Hindu citizens. They would take a Hindu and they would put him in charge of over the uh, stuff that would be for the Muslims. And all they did was cause giant conflict. And the people weren't getting relief and the, the government was not functioning on their behalf. And then they made all kinds of promises about they would leave the country, World War I, if they could get India and, and the Muslims to fight for them in World War I. Well, they all did. They came and fought and then they didn't, they reneged on the promise. And then when it came to World War II, they couldn't get um, the Muslims to fight for them, but they could get the Hindus to come fight for them. A lot of people don't know this. There were a lot of Hindus at Dunkirk uh, in the British Army, um, you know, and with the guarantee that they would, the British would leave and allow them to have their country. Uh, in this documentary, which was very revealing, when the time came, hey, we got to turn it over, they brought some guy uh, from England who didn't, and the decision is we got to separate the borders. We've got to make sure people have water resources and all the other key things and where the indigenous peoples are at. And this guy came in and some guy from England who knew nothing about the area, nothing about the people. He'd never been there. And he decided with a map, and he just drew all the borders between India and Pakistan and split two parts of Pakistan up and, and just had an unbelievable mess. And the, the nature of rich nations and the nature of rich leaders is they, to great expense of the peoples, and they purposely will cause division in what we sometimes call propaganda you know, to get the masses of the people uh, to do various things. Are those things, now that's what happened historically in the previous generation. Is that same stuff going on today? You can be assured it is. Um, I do not consider the U.S. media to be a news source. I consider it to be a propaganda machine to do the, do the fomenting. And right now in our country, you can see direct instances where the media is specifically setting up the American citizens to be in conflict with one another. Racial issues, 
um, you know, we'll have a march of peaceful people. 10,000 people will march down to Washington Mall. Won't even make the news. Get me a hundred protesters, you know, that are ultra-liberal and crazy, and it'll be on the 6 o'clock news and the major news story for a couple of days. That, why is that? It's because the media has a message they want to get across. They have a certain world they want to have. They want to have a certain control over the people. The world in Noah's day was like that. There were certain people controlling the people, and it was causing great corruption amongst the people. Just People naturally were not getting along with and living with each other, if you just leave them alone. But instead, things were being stirred up and so forth. The next item, they said that they were marrying and giving in marriage. Oh, my, can I get started on that subject for today? It's ridiculous, um, this stuff. I just saw a news story the other day that showed a whole bunch of people standing with their hands like this. They were going through a ceremony where they were marrying themselves. How utterly ridiculous can we possibly be? You know, my argument about marriage and all of the other alternative lifestyles is that marriage, first of all, is a religious law. It's not a law that comes from the government. It's a religious law. And, of course, our Constitution says that our government is prohibited from making any law to establish their own religion or state religion. And they are prohibited from infringing on religious law in any way, shape, or form. Here's marriage, one of the most major religious laws there is. And we're absolutely violating the Constitution by specifying who can get married to who, getting in on that subject from the courts and from the government, or prohibiting who can be married. And this thing has gotten completely out of control. That's uh, what marrying and giving in marriage means. It means marriage is completely out of control. This basic fundamental a provision that, that began with the creation for how we as a social creatures will be structured, how we'll build families and how we'll procreate, is completely being assaulted. Well, it was in the days of Noah, and that's what Yeshua is referring to. But most importantly was it talks about that they did not understand. Um, everybody in the world has the prophecies of the coming of the Lord. And in fact, if you go and did a poll, have you ever heard that uh, the Messiah, Jesus, you know, Yeshua is supposed to come back? I would venture to say, with the exception of maybe one or minor percent, everybody's heard that. Everybody in the world, even unbelievers have heard that. So they know there's an expectation of something to come. Do they, if they want to know what that's about, all they have to do is go open the Bible and read what it says, besides the literally thousands of people out talking on this subject and trying to teach about this subject. There is no lack of knowledge on this subject. But what there is, a complete lack of, is the proper understanding of things. They just... And thus you have these teachings that we've endured in the past, like the pre-tribulation rapture. We all get zapped up. Uh, the, you know, we all go to heaven when we die. You know, all, all of these different super simplified, messed up prophecy teachings 
because they simply don't have the understanding of what the scripture says. And that emphatically is true today. Um, every time I get into a conversation and meet someone, I get into a conversation about the end of the age coming, the Messiah, even though they agree, oh, we believe in the second coming. It's like they are babes. Do you have any idea what this means, what the scriptures are saying um, about this subject? No, they don't. These are the believers don't understand what's going on. So the thing is shocking when it's going to happen. That's the reason why I guess the Messiah said, my coming to you will be quickly. And instead of plan, then you could have been part of the plan. Um, this is the world that God came and judged. So we certainly have those characteristics for our present generation for it. Paralleling what I just read to you from Matthew 24, let me take you to Luke 17, just so that you know that uh, this is covered twice in the Gospels. And in Luke uh, 17, which is pretty much mirroring uh, what we saw in Matthew, let me just start at verse 26. It says, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The, uh, the judgment, you know, the reason why we have these documented for us is as he said, you, you want to understand the world that's going to be going through, you want to understand the dynamic, the overall dynamic about the coming of the Lord, look back to when God judged the world before. Um, and you can see those characteristics, you know, that you can understand God's argument of why he judged the world and how he did it. And the big thing is that the people had no idea that they had violated um, a holy God and his creation, and that uh, they were worthy of judgment from him. And they, or they re refused to listen to him. They refused to consider him. And in today's world, and I think it's fair to say, we live in a godless society. And it's increasingly becoming where the mention of God in the public square is just like forbidden. You know, um, the vice president, uh, Vice President Pence, is a very godly man. Very religious, very spiritual. He's always been. But now that he's in the White House, you know, the liberals are going crazy because he might pray in the White House. That he might have a Bible study. Or that he might make mention of the Lord, um, you know, of those things. Now, thank goodness we have a president right now, President Trump. He seems to be echoing some of that. I'm still a little bit cautious with him because I don't see a really strong, <laughs> devout believer here. But I do see someone who has a basic sense of good, goodness, and, and so forth. And he's under the influence of a couple of pretty, pretty good spiritual men, you know, the men that are serving him. And so I'm encouraged by that because he's probably receiving that kind of counsel, you know, that it's about, you know, to love God. And love, love our neighbor. You know, so I'm glad to see that particular part. But at the same time, the rest of our society, they hate him even more because of that. Part of the anti-Trump stuff they've got is because they think that if he follows any of these Christian principles, any of these godly principles, somehow this is oppressing them. 
And I had an opportunity not too long ago, very seriously, where um, some people in the homosexual community, they feel that they're very directly oppressed by people of faith. And it's like it's a giant myth. It is truly a giant myth. Um, you know, in my whole lifetime, I've been around homosexuals. Never once have I ever been accused, because I'm a strong believer, that I oppressed them. Now, I don't go up and attack them. I don't try to super teach them something that they don't want to hear. I wait for the opportunity when they ask me a question. Well, I do that with everybody. You know, it, you don't have to be a homosexual. I'll, I'll do the same thing. If you're a fellow that works down at the garage, I'm not going to walk in, interfere you doing your job or your work or your life or whatever. And, but I will set up the environment so that I'm ready. So when you're ready to ask me a question, I'm going to be ready to answer your question. And, um, and, th and that's the way I see most believers operating. And this oppression thing is, uh, you know, for crying out loud, it's the government is doing the opposite in schools and public squares, kicking out the Ten Commandments, kicking out people of religious faith and so forth. So who's being oppressed? Talk about flipping the tables, you know, on this situation. Uh, the reason I mention that is because that's part of the atmosphere of this anti-God, godless society that the, the prophecy says, those are the people that deserve judgment. Those are the people that are going to get judgment. And um, consider this for a moment. And maybe I could answer the question rhetorically for you. How big is God? Really? Uh, is God smarter than us? He's definitely smarter than us. By the way, he created the universe. He's smarter than the top scientist. He's smarter than the smartest man that's ever lived in the history of the world. His wisdom cannot possibly be equaled. And he's given us a couple of rules on how we should live and certain things we should avoid. So this idea, let's ignore what he has to say, and let's do our own thing. Let's be godless, and let's do our own thing. Do you understand how utterly ignorant and stupid that is to do that? I mean, you would never go up to a guy that's got a Ph.D. in physics and try to explain to him you know, about some scientific principle and, to, and lecture him on it. Yeah, but people are not afraid to lecture God and dismiss God, you know, over the things of life and the things he's created. That's the world that gets judged. And we certainly have that present with us today. Now, let me, as a final thing, let me move you to Peter and his letters. I want to go first Peter first. Peter's going to make mention of Noah and the flood. In 1 Peter and chapter 3, at verse 20, let me read that reference to you. Who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you that the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for good conscience and through the resurrection of the Lord. The, um, 
The patience of God is demonstrated to us by the story of the flood. And as I mentioned to you, there was a hundred years that he allowed Noah to build the ark and so that he could preserve his family. And we see many instances where God has been merciful with us and patient with us. And by the way, in the end times, you know, I've been looking for the end times. I don't know if you know this, but I've actually in my lifetime been looking for the coming of the Lord pretty regular. And I have to stop and, and think here for a moment. Well, I was hoping the Lord would come here. It looked like the signs were all coming together, but he seemed to delay it, and then the final signs didn't quite come in. For example, I've been looking for the rebuilding of the altar, and there's been many instances over the years where it looked like we were about to do it, and then the Lord kind of delayed, and we're still waiting for it. You know, one of the key prerequisites to the end of the age. And every time he does it, I said, well, Lord, I guess your patience is greater than my patience for this world. And I guess you want to get a few more saved. So let's be about the business of sharing the faith and being good witnesses. And we're going to keep doing it, Lord, until you're ready for this thing to end. But why has there been a delay? Why is it stretching out to the last day? The patience of the Lord. The Lord wants as many people in his kingdom as possible. He wants to give every opportunity for people to turn around, repent, and uh, to do that. Let me, uh, let me take you to 2 Peter, chapter 2. And at verse 5 it says this, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to the destruction by reducing them to, oh, that's verse 6, verse 5, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of ungodly. Guys, if you can just look at that one little example about how God was working with Noah to wisdom. Here at the end of the age, what sort of preparation are we doing compared to Noah when he was building an ark? What sort of preparation are we doing to get ready for this judgment that's coming? Now, those of you who have heard of the God's plan of the greater exodus, and about how you got to get your sukkah ready, and you come to the Feast of Tabernacles and learn about that, well, you're like Noah. You are doing the preparatory things, get your sukkah ready to go, like Noah was building the ark. Now, um, how many people were building arks in those days? <laughs> Very few. In fact, the emphasis is put on how few did it. How many of the brethren in the faith today... The over a billion Christians that exist in the world today, how many of them are preparing the sukkah? Very few. Truly, the lessons that the Messiah gives to us on preparation are uh, for the end of the age are just completely being ignored by most people. Just go back to Noah and the ark and, and look at the construction of the ark. What would it have taken to build that ark? You want to talk about preparation for the judgment. You don't have to look any further than there to see an incredible example of what Noah and his family had to do to prepare. We don't have to build an ark. We just have to get our sukkah ready to go. But how many people are getting their sukkah ready to go? Uh, that's one of the lessons that come from. Finally, let's look at Second Peter 3. And let me read this passage to you, beginning at verse 1, several verses here. 
2 Peter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm sending, writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord say, and Savior spoken by your apostles. He mentions three groups. You know, what was spoken before by the prophets, what was spoken in the commandment, and what was spoken by the apostles that followed the Messiah. Uh, when we are, for example, we just finished the Feast of Tabernacles. When we observe the Feast of Tabernacles, we're fulfilling a commandment. But what's the teaching of the commandment, and how does it tell us beforehand things? By remembering the past, we can understand what's going to be happening in the future. The people who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. Have you ever heard that expression before? They're going to make the same dumb mistake. It's a case of lessons learned. You know, if you pay attention to the past, you learn lessons from it, so it advances you into the future. And in the case of, he says that there are many instances where God, through the commandments and through the prophets, and through the apostles have given us instruction that will be of help to us in the future. Verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. We just talked about the godless people. They mock God. And they mock people like you and me. They're at the brink right now. And I have heard the statements made is just through a few small voices. Very soon it's going to become the majority point of view. If you believe in God, they think you're an idiot. They think you're a poison. They think that you are harmful to society, that you're, quote, killing them. And they're going to come up with all this false rhetoric to justify coming and persecuting and killing us. By the way, this has happened so many times in the history of the world, it's, it's, you'd think we'd learned a lesson. It's coming to this last generation. That's what, that's what Peter's saying. In the last days, there's going to be these mockers. They disrespect every part of it. And they're following their lust. They, they're pursuing what they want. I made this statement not too long ago to a person when I was talking about homosexuality and gender identity. In fact, it was one of the questions that came up at the Midrash at the, at the um, Feast of Tabernacles. It's all about lust. That's all it is, lust. Somebody wants something. They want that pleasure. They, you know, it's lust. It's not based on principle. You know, and then coming back and, oh, it's about love. No, it's not. It's about lust. Oh, well, you know, we, we should allow them the freedom and uh, they have the right. And I said, no, they don't. Rights come from God. You want to talk about rights, then start talking about what God has given you. They, they're dismissing God. They're making their own rights. And that's fundamentally the problem. Why are they making their own rights? Because that's where their lust is going. And that's what it says will be happening in the world today. By the way, it's already happening. I can testify to you right now. It's already happening. People are following their lusts instead of real principle and uh, rights that come from God. He goes on to say, <clears throat> this same group, verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So they're now going to move in the last days to mocking the idea that the Lord will come back. 
and mocking the idea that it would be a day of the Lord. Mocking the idea that God would come back and judge this world. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Um, they've forgotten that. Now, the truth of the matter is, nobody's really forgotten it. They just don't think it means anything. They just fail to understand what is the lesson from that, and they dismiss it. Evidence is coming in from the physical sciences overwhelmingly that there was a great flood on the earth before. And while they don't want to think that, the, that God did that, the scripture says so. The, the ancient testimony says so. And by the way, in every... Uh, indigenous cultural group that we have in the world where they've been living there for a long time they all have their own version of the story of Noah and the flood they all share that oh yeah there was a great flood before and people continue to dismiss it they mock it uh, they just don't think he's coming back they don't think there's going to be a judgment there's not going to be a day of the Lord and they forget God's already done this before this is not a new and novel idea that God would come and judge the world. He's already done it before and given us the full testimony of it. But mockers, you know, don't get that. And verse 7, But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And many times in the Old Testament, it talks about how God would do various judgments in various places. And so God is a judge. I mean, he's in the business of that when you get that far away from him to the point where you're harmful to yourself and harmful to other people, he takes you out. You know, you're not, you know, he's the God of the living. You're, you're, you're acting and bringing death. So he's trying to preserve, you know, his people and protect them. Um, the uh, If you go and you harass a man and his family enough, there's a good possibility that man's going to come out of his house and he's going to do something very serious with you. I mean, whatever the case may be, you know, if you're just in a neighborhood and you go and harass this man and his children and his family and so forth, there's a very good possibility this guy is going to finally come to the end of himself and he's going to come out and he's going to do something about it. That's the way most fathers and husbands are. And the picture of the Messiah coming back is that of a father and a husband that has had enough. So if we can understand the simplicity of what every man in his own family has the right to do, then we should have no problem understanding our Heavenly Father and who is the bridegroom and the wrath that is going to come from him when, you know, people have been abusing his bride and destroying his, his earth, you know, that he owns. So you, you can understand there's going to be judgment. So the story of Noah and, his, and the ark is an incredible story of God's impending judgment, how he preserves his people, and how he judges his enemies. 
So that's what we have in the New Testament being taught to us to remind us of that lesson. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you again for the Sabbath. Thank you for the wonderful story of Noah and the flood. Thank you, Lord, for the expanded teaching that are given to us by the Messiah and the apostles concerning this matter. Help us, Lord, to understand the days we live in. Help us to prepare our ark, you know, whatever it is, our sukkah. And help us, Lord, to be ready for your return. And thank you for preserving us and protecting us throughout all of this. In Yeshua's name, amen. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing Shalom 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 a gift from God has put a smile upon your face He's got the whole world in His hands obey His commands and you will know peace Shalom